Brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful God, you guide our footsteps. Now guide our hearts. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was a boy, I had no uh, shortage of opportunities to make my own father angry. Uh, And so in this gospel reading, I really wonder about the condition of Zebedee in the boat. He doesn't get a lot of attention. I mean, he gets his name in the Bible, which that's, you know, kind of nice. But he gets left in the boat. And I think, you know, the mystery here is... Simon, Peter, and Andrew, right? Casting nets into the sea. And then Jesus is like, hey, you, uh, do you want to be uh, radical outcasts? And they're like, oh, sure, that sounds great. And they follow him. But I think there's less mystery with, uh, with John and, and James because it says that they're sitting in the boat mending nets. It doesn't say how many nets that they have left to mend. I suspect it was a lot. Because if you're sitting in a boat mending nets and some rabbi uh, with the two young neighbors comes by and is like, hey, you want to go do something else? You would probably be like, I would literally love to do anything else. That sounds wonderful. Uh, they hop up and they go. And there's poor Zebedee sitting in the boat mending all of these nets. When you go to uh, Galilee in In Israel, Palestine, if you go there today, you can eat the same fish that they were fishing for in that story. You can go to any number of small restaurants on the shore and get overcharged uh, for biblical fish. Um, And you'll have one opportunity in your life to eat this fish, so you really ought to take it. People will caution you, you'll say, it's tilapia. And you're like, well, yes, but it's biblical tilapia. They say, well, they're overcharging you for the fish. And you're like, well, how often do you eat fish by the shore of the Sea of Galilee? My God, I was trying to get to one of these restaurants when I was in the Middle East, and I had no cause to be in that region of the country. It's kind of its own place. And, but I went there anyway, and I couldn't get a seat at a table to save my life. It's a very popular tourist destination. So um, I... Uh, I took a shower and cleaned myself up, and I probably shaved, uh, and I waited for the biggest tourist bus to pull up, and then I just slipped into their ranks. Because by God, I was going to eat one of these Bible tilapia. It was the last thing I did. None of these people knew each other very well, so they certainly didn't know me, and I was ushered into the restaurant and sat down at this very long table with the rest of them, and they distributed the menu, but of course we were all getting uh, Bible fish. Uh, except for the woman who was sitting across from me, who, uh, by some miracle, was from West Grand Rapids, or West Michigan, from the west side of this town. My God, she probably lives here. For all I know, she could be sitting in this room very, right in this very moment. Oh, this was many years ago. And she absolutely refused to order the fish. And I said, we don't like seafood? What, what are you doing in the Mediterranean? She said, no, seafood is lovely. I will not spend $10 on a piece of tilapia. I said, you spent thousands of dollars to fly to the other side of the planet. You can spend $10 on a piece of fish. She said, no, I'm not going to be taken advantage of. 
So the waiter, waiter came by and I said, I would like two servings of fish, please. Here's $20. Put one in front of this grumpy Calvinist. Uh, <laughs> so I, I paid for her fish and she ate the, the fish and it was, it's fine. It's not, I mean, it's not anything to write home about. But, uh, and so perhaps that's why they were, they were so eager to do literally anything else. They followed Jesus because they were sick of eating tilapia on the beach. <laughs> but I do think about Zebedee and I do think about his emotional condition after his two sons leave him there in the boat with his nets. And I think about my father and his two sons who left him there in the winter with a fake stack of lumber uh, that they pretended to stack and instead had built a big fort on the inside and the whole thing collapsed and came to tears and ruin. He was frustrated with us very frequently. The, ang the angriest my dad ever got at me, I think, was I can remember exactly where we were seated uh, at, the, at the restaurant. It was, it was a, it's probably one you've eaten. It was called Sam's Joint. Anybody ever eaten at Sam's Joint? Yeah. They used to have those weird dancing bears or dogs. No, they had two dogs. It was like one dog played the guitar and he was like, I'm from Texas. I'm a Texas dog. And the other dog was a Confederate general playing a banjo in Alaska, Michigan. These people don't know their history. Anyway, uh, terrifying. Uh, and you could get frozen ice cream. But I ate there with my dad and I was about 16 years old and I was a terrible student. I'd made a mess of everything in high school. I was always uh, being suspended, um, being sent home. Um, they were doing their damnedest to get me into the alternative high school program, which if you knew in the 1990s was not a place that you really wanted to, to, your child to end up. Uh, there was a guidance counselor recommending GRE programs to my dad, all of these other sorts of things. He was just very frustrated with his youngest son um, who had no aptitude for anything. And I said, well, I think I'm going to join the, the military when I get out of high school. Um, I didn't know if I was going to join the military. And remember, this was before 9-11. In the 90s, the United States military was not a place of nobility. As impossible as that may seem to understand today, in the late 90s, the United States Army especially was the butt of a lot of jokes. I can remember episodes of The Simpsons where they joked about how uh, the wayward uh, Bart Simpson would end up in the army if he didn't get his, uh, his act together. Um, we hadn't had a war since the first Gulf War uh, in the early 90s, and that was a war that lasted a month. Prior to that, the only real knowledge Americans had of war was the Vietnam War. There were no veterans uh, like we have today. It wasn't until after 2001 when we really became a nation of warriors, a nation of people, uh, generations that went off to war. Now there are young men and women who are serving in the same guard posts that their parents served in. There are U.S. Uh, military members uh, who were not born when 9-11 happened. Uh, they were, uh, 9-11 was more than 18 years ago, right? Uh, and likewise, there are people fighting against those soldiers in parts of the world, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and elsewhere, who they were not born when the towers fell. And so we've entered a period of our history where intergenerational warfare has become normal. The war in Afghanistan was the longest war in U.S. history. But in the 90s, I was suggesting the military because I wanted to get my dad off my back. He was disappointed in me. My dad served 
with great distinction in the Vietnam War. His father and his uncles served with distinction in the Second World War. His great-grandfather served as an officer in the First World War. And so it seemed to make sense to me that I might just join the army and do what he did. And he was furious. He was so angry that he had to leave the restaurant. On the way home, I asked him what he was so ticked off about. He said four generations of Danisons didn't ruin their lives in the U.S. military so that you could go and do the same. He said the only thing that I ever did for my dad was make enough money so that my sons wouldn't have to serve in the military. He said, you're going to throw all that away. He was mad. I never served in the military. I was recruited very heavily for chaplaincy. Uh, continue to do, they continue to do so today. I always, now I'm almost 40, so I'll stop getting those phone calls here in about three months. But that desire to make your father proud by doing the thing that he did is something that all teenage boys, I think, know very intimately. And so while Zebedee might have been angry that his sons had decided to leave him in the boat, mending the nets, it took a measure of courage for those boys to get out of that boat in the first place. I remember another occasion when I was 17. Again, in as much trouble as a boy in a town of 600 people could get up to. And my father, standing over me, and he said the words that would cut me uh, for the rest of my life. He said, from now until you're out of my house, you're dead weight. That's a really hard and heavy thing for a teenage boy to hear from somebody that they look up to. You don't want to be dead weight. I think of the dead weight around the edges of the nets there in the Galilee that pull them down to the bottom of the water. I wonder about that as I think about James and John setting out to do something beyond their father's imaginings. I wonder if later there was cause for Zebedee to have deep pride in his two sons, his two wayward sons, that having had the courage to leave everything in the boat, I recently read a book about black sheep and the responsibility that they play in the generations of their family tree. And the author, who was a poet and a black sheep of his own, wrote that the black sheep of the family is the branch on the tree that refuses to be pruned, that refuses to be bent back into shape, that seeks the sunlight out beneath the shadows of the branches that are above and below it. And in finding that sunlight, blossoms and flowers and sends the seeds of that family tree to all the corners of the earth. So black sheep are important, I suppose. John and James, destined to be black sheep, but destined in their own way to be apostles of Jesus Christ and authors of chapters of biblical texts. I think that leaving what we have been given there at the shore side to follow Jesus Christ is a risk, but it is one that bears out on the investment. I think that if you would have told my father when he stood there telling me that I was dead weight, that I would someday be 
successful, have three beautiful children, have a life where I provide service to others, he'd be proud. I think that if you told him that I would chop wood on a homestead 500 yards from his own, he would tell you that you needed institutionalization, <laughs> that you were probably off your meds, uh, but that's the case. He died when I was 22 years old. I was old enough to show him that I had it where it mattered, that I would make something of myself. When I came to him the last time, I was a salesman, I was wearing a suit, I was selling advertising, which is like selling <laughs> imaginary products. <laughs> Advertising's just made up, folks. Uh, and I, I was earning an income for myself, and he had a degree of respect. He had no idea I would go into ministry. It didn't happen until after he died. But when it was time for me to sit before that committee of 12 stern older people and tell them I wanted ordination in their beloved denomination, I was passed a note by an individual who had known my father. And I didn't open it until I'd gotten back to my car. But on it, this gentleman, who was an attorney like my dad, that's how he'd known my dad, had written on it, Nathan, your father is looking down on you from heaven, and he's beaming. That was enough. I had been unburdened from whatever dead weight I was feeling had been given to me by my own father's anger and wrath, by the forgiveness of another man who'd known him well. That was sufficient for me. It was sufficient for me to be able to then, in that moment, choose to have a relationship with my biological father, even though he'd already died. I meet so many people in my life who lose their parents when they're young and who say to me, I never had an opportunity to make things up. I never had an opportunity to set things right. To them, I can only say, your parents are looking down on you from heaven and they're beaming. Now, the flip side of that coin is that there are those of us whose stories are just as true who must leave everything at the beach, because if we don't, we'll be dragged down into that same mediocrity. And because of this, we cannot be in relationship with our biological family. So too, this story tells us that Jesus calls us as well. Jesus tells us again and again and again in the gospel that we will be called children of God first. And that the message of the kingdom of heaven is nothing if it doesn't mean that we, can we cannot choose our own family. By that I mean we can choose Jesus as our brother. We can choose the apostles as our parents. We can choose those who love us to be our family. And we are unburdened from biology. Because it's not our genetics or our blood that determines who we belong to. It is the water of our baptism that determines who we belong to. That's real freedom in Christ for people for whom their family is not a place of safety, comfort, or support. And so in today's message, we're asked if we do nothing else than to simply take an accounting of our life here at the beach and know that we're empowered by the authority of Jesus Christ to leave things at the beach 
if we need to. To walk away from something if we need to. To face the frustration and anger of our own kinfolk if we need to. And to know that if we are following Jesus Christ, that work is redemptive and good. It's good. So if you're a black sheep, find the sunlight, blossom. Forgive those branches that have to live beneath the shade for the way they've been pruned or or bent. And continue to flourish. And for those of you with children who can't get it right, who seem to always be showing up at home when they ought to be in school, uh, who may show up uh, on occasion uh, with a law enforcement officer by their side, (laughs) they might become a congregationalist minister. So count your blessings. You never know. And for those of you who have found yourself in the loving embrace of a family that understands and celebrates your gifts, don't hesitate to be family to someone else, to someone who perhaps needs your love in their life. There are so many out there who don't have that. And it can be nothing more than a simple note scrawled on a piece of paper passed to a curious young person across a boardroom table that could change their life forever. So be good and gracious with those compliments and words of blessing. In so doing, all of us together find our way into that very place that Jesus Christ is proclaiming has come near to us today, the kingdom of heaven on earth. I think that that is a worthy ministry. And let all God's children say,